Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 9th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, a partner with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new published Court of Appeal decision limits the subject matter jurisdiction of the WCAB in professional athlete cases. Here's what happened in the case of Federal Insurance Company versus the WCAB and Adrian Johnson. Johnson was a professional basketball player who was not employed by a California team, has never resided in California, has played only one professional game here, and suffered no specific injury here. She was initially drafted by the Cleveland Rockers, a professional basketball team in the Women's National Basketball Association, and played for them for two years. She next played for the Orlando Miracle, which became the Connecticut Sun in 2003. In 2003, an MRI revealed she had a knee injury for which she had a surgery in 2004. She filed a Connecticut workers' compensation claim for the injury to her right knee and received a $30,000 settlement. Johnson played 34 total games in 2003 with only one in California. Nonetheless, she filed a continuous trauma claim also in California against the Connecticut Sun and its workers' compensation insurer, Federal Insurance Company, and she was awarded benefits without apportionment after trial. After a petition for reconsideration, the board rescinded the award and returned the matter to apportion the compensation between the present injury and past injuries for which she already received workers' compensation benefits in Connecticut. The defendants then petitioned the Court of Appeal for a writ of review, contending that the board did not have jurisdiction over Johnson's claim. And the Court of Appeal agreed that there was no subject matter jurisdiction. The court reasoned that the WCAB determination that playing one professional basketball game in California was sufficient to establish personal jurisdiction over the employer, but this mischaracterized the issue. The major issue is which state's law applies, not which state has personal jurisdiction. The issue is actually a conflicts of law issue, which arises when there are contacts in multiple states. Whether California's workers' compensation law governs depends on the application of the due process clause of the United States Constitution. If an employer or the insurer are subject to workers' compensation law of a state that does not have a sufficient connection to the matter, they are deprived of due process. Also, the determination may depend on the application of the full faith and credit clause of the United States Constitution. That is, if the workers' compensation law of another state exclusively should apply and California does not have a sufficient contact with the matter, California must, under the full faith and credit clause, accede to the other state to provide a forum. California courts have long focused on the contacts of the employment relationship with California in determining which state's workers' compensation law applies. Despite a lack of California authority, it is widely accepted that rights created by the Compensation Act of one state cannot ordinarily be enforced in another state or in a federal court. Such a principle is justified because workers' compensation laws involve administrative machinery that will differ from state to state. 
if this state lacks a sufficient relationship with Johnson's injuries, to require the employer to defend the case here would be a denial of due process such that the courts of this state do not have authority to act. This might be referred to as lack of subject matter jurisdiction. The Court of Appeal concluded that a single basketball game played by a professional player does not create a legitimate interest in the injuries that cannot be traced factually to one game. The effect of the California game on the injury is at best de minimis. Thus, as a matter of due process, California does not have the power to entertain Johnson's claim. And now our fraud report. 47-year-old Richard Lopez Escamilla Jr. was sentenced in King County Superior Court to one felony count of insurance fraud. He was ordered to pay restitution of nearly $4.2 million to the State Compensation Insurance Fund, Seabride Insurance, and the Employment Development Department. Escamilla was also sentenced to serve six years in prison. He was accused of illegally reducing his workers' compensation premiums by underreporting employee payrolls for his farm labor contracting company, as well as misrepresenting previous comp claims for the firm. He operated businesses under several names, including ROC Harvesting, EC Labor, EC Labor Incorporated, and ES Labor. He often changed the names of his businesses to pretend to be a new business in order to lower his premiums. The conviction was the result of a joint investigation with the San Joaquin Valley Premium Task Force, the Kings County District Attorney's Office, and the Employment Development Department. A U.S. Senate committee found that Medicare had paid as much as $92 million for medical services or equipment ordered or prescribed by doctors who were dead. Many of the prescribing doctors had died more than five years before the date when they supposedly ordered or authorized the service. Healthcare fraud is said to cost U.S. taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars a year and has garnered increased attention, especially since President Obama wants to cover some of the costs of reforms by fighting abuse. Yet interviews with several law enforcement and healthcare experts indicate that the president may be disappointed. Some fear the focus on fraud may come as too little, too late, after years of government complacency and inaction. Experts like the FBI's John Gillies say the problem has been getting worse all the time as mob figures are lured by fabulously easy money and relatively light prison sentences into fraud targeting Medicare. Gillies is the special agent in charge of the FBI Miami division. He says the state is also now ground zero for healthcare fraud since so many elderly Americans have retired to end their days in its famous sunshine. Hardly a week goes by without authorities in Florida reporting another arrest, indictment, or conviction for Medicare fraud, which has replaced the drug trade as the crime of choice among many criminals. The cases often involve multi-million dollar schemes featuring bogus suppliers of wheelchairs or other DME and sham infusion therapies for the treatment of HIV and AIDS patients. 
One recent case included the indictment of 11 members of New York's Bonanno crime family. And prosecutors say the crimes are becoming more elaborate, involving kickbacks, stolen identities, and manipulated billing practices. The FBI estimates that fraud accounts for 3 to 10 percent of U.S. healthcare expenditures per year. A Monterey County contractor pleaded guilty to several charges stemming from conducting business without a proper license. 45-year-old Lavaki Fali pleaded guilty to one felony count of fraudulent use of a contractor's license, one misdemeanor count of failing to secure workers' comp insurance, and one misdemeanor count of contracting without a license. Folly, who is conducting business as VEI Construction and S&JR Construction, will be sentenced January 29th. He faces up to three years in prison and thousands of dollars in fines. And in an unrelated case, a Felton-based contractor pleaded guilty to two charges relating to his roofing business in Monterey County. 61-year-old Matthew Cunningham pleaded guilty to one misdemeanor count of failing to obtain workers' compensation insurance and one misdemeanor count of contracting without a license. He had placed his license into an active status but continued to advertise his services online. Cunningham later reactivated his license, purchased the appropriate insurance, and became compliant with legal requirements. He was placed on probation for three years and ordered to pay fines. And in regulatory news, a new federal law was passed last week that gives U.S. health regulators greater oversight of bulk pharmaceutical compounding and strengthens their ability to track drugs through the distribution pipeline. The Drug Quality and Security Act clarifies the authority of the FDA over compounded medications and creates a new class of compounding manufacturer known as outsourcing facility, which will be able to sell to hospitals in bulk. The law was prompted by quality control problems that led to a deadly outbreak of fungal meningitis in 2012. The product has been linked to more than 50 deaths. Following the outbreak, the FDA conducted 31 unannounced inspections in 18 states of other compounding pharmacies, finding conditions that could create a contamination risk in all but one of them. As a result, the FDA asked lawmakers for more power to regulate compounding pharmacies. Besides giving more regulatory powers over compounders, the law authorizes the FDA to develop a national track and trace system to secure the pharmaceutical supply chain and minimize opportunities for contamination, adulteration, diversion, or counterfeiting. The law also creates a national set of standards to track pharmaceuticals through the distribution chain to help thwart the introduction of fake medications into the drug supply. Last year, fake vials of cancer drug Avastin appeared in the United States from Britain where they were purchased from a Turkish wholesaler. In the United States, dozens of states have adopted some type of regulation designed to track a drug's pedigree, but the rules are inconsistent. This new federal law is designed to apply a uniform standard nationwide. The DIR announced that the aggregate costs for the workers' compensation administrating 
administration revolving fund and other funds will decrease nearly $9.6 million. Slight increases in the appropriations for the Division of Occupational Safety and Health and the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement were mitigated by increased reserves in the subsequent Injuries Benefits Trust Fund and the Uninsured Employers Benefits Trust Fund, as well as a one-time balance transfer from the targeted inspection consultation and the construction industry enforcement funds. Due to the relative sizes of the aggregate insured premium and self-insured paid indemnity pools, the effects of the assessment on insured employers and self-insured employers might differ. Self-insured employers will see an increase in costs of over 8%, while insured employers will receive a reduction of over 21%. The assessments are authorized by Labor Code Sections 62.5 and 62.6. In addition to funding the work of the Division of Workers' Compensation and partially funding the work of the Divisions of Occupational Safety and Health and Labor Standards Enforcement, assessments also fund anti-fraud efforts by the California Department of Insurance and local district attorneys. It pays benefits to injured workers whose employers were illegally insured and provides compensation to injured workers who already had a disability or impairment at the time of an injury. Insurers must pay the assessment for policyholders and recover those funds through workers' compensation policy surcharges and assessments. Letters and invoices were mailed to insurers and self-insured employers showing the share of the assessments and the surcharges that will be due. A study in the December Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine found that many of the workers' compensation claims closed with no payment often lead to increased costs for employee group insurance plans. Nationwide, the so-called zero-cost work comp claim could cost group health insurance plans more than $200 million per year. The researchers <clears throat> analyzed claim data on more than 12,000 injured workers. 16% of the claims were zero-cost claims, that is, they resulted in no workers' compensation payments. However, use of and payments from the employee's group health insurance increased after the comp claims were denied. The increase was largest for outpatient care with an estimated increase of approximately $400 per claim. Because their data may miss some occupational injuries, researchers suspect the true economic impact was even higher. The study adds to previous evidence suggesting that non-workers' compensation insurance covers at least part of the costs of work-related injuries and illnesses. The study quantifies and illustrates an employer's quagmire. A $0 comp claim may actually be cost-shifting, not necessarily cost-saving. Large employers pay the costs of all forms of employee benefits, including group health care. For those employers, aggressive defense of an AOE-COE issue in the comp forum may produce illusory savings if that cost is simply shifted over to another employee-funded program. The bigger picture may be a view that an injured worker is a costly pro problem no matter which of the employer's pockets pays the costs. 
The California Insurance Commissioner approved a number of changes to the California Workers' Compensation Uniform Statistical Reporting Plan 1995, the California Workers' Compensation Experience Rating Plan 1995, and the Miscellaneous Regulations for the Recording and Reporting of Data 1995. Revised versions of these publications reflecting the Insurance Commissioner's decision are now available on the WCIRB website. In addition, the WCIRB has published updated advisory plan information, including updated California hazard group assignments and loss elimination ratios, and updated versions of the California Small Deductible Plan, California Insolvent Insurer Rating and Adjustment Plan, and California Basic Underwriting Manual. These advisory plans and supplemental tables are published as a convenience for WCIRB members and do not bear the official approval of the insurance commissioner. The DWC and Maximus Federal Services invite injured workers and their designees and advocates to attend a one-hour web training on the independent medical review process. This webinar will address the roles of injured workers and their designees in the IMR process, including the planned IMR electronic submission feature. Pre-registration is required to attend this free webinar meeting, and space is limited to 500 participants. The recorded webinar will be made available afterward for those unable to attend the live presentation. Please see the DWC website for further information. And in medical news, scientists may have found a new treatment that can help people with spinal cord injuries walk better. The research is published in the November online issue of Neurology, the medical journal of the American Academy of Neurology. About 59% of all spinal injuries are incomplete, leaving pathways that could allow the spinal cord to change in a way that allows people to walk again. Usually a person affected by this type of spine injury seldom recovers the ability to walk normally. Researchers at Emory University, the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison discovered a promising new way for the spinal cord to make the connections needed to walk better. The participants were exposed to short periods of breathing low oxygen levels, which is called hypoxia. The treatment increased walking speed and endurance when compared to the control group that did not receive the treatment. Researchers theorize that an increase in spinal serotonin caused by hypoxia sets off a cascade of changes in proteins that help restore connections in the spine. The study was supported by the U.S. Department of Defense Spinal Cord Injury Research Program. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please have a happy holiday and drop by again next week for more news.